Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the history of vacation homes in the greater New York City area, the role they played in the pandemic, and new businesses growing to serve this market. You'll join me in learning about Wilderness Drive, a passive house designed as a vacation home in East Jewett, a town located in the Catskills region of upstate New York. Vacation homes go by monikers like summer home, weekend home, cottage, second home, and beach house. Together, they represent places for an escape. There are four vacation home markets in the greater New York City region. To the east of New York City is Eastern Long Island, including Fire Island, the North Fork, and the Hamptons. To the south is the Jersey Shore to Atlantic City and Cape May. To the north are the Hudson Valley and the Catskills Mountains, including Putnam, Orange, Dutchess, Ulster, Columbia, Green, and Sullivan Counties. To the east is Litchfield County, Connecticut, and the Berkshire Mountains. The concept of vacation homes came into the psyche of Americans in 1869 with the book Adventures in the Wilderness. It was written by preacher William Murray and described his vacation into rural upstate New York 
at a time when most Americans, I mean excluding Native Americans, saw areas beyond cities and farms as places of danger, i.e. from the white colonial perspective. The year the book was published, the cultural phenomenon of the summer vacation began. Writer Tony Paratet writes about this history in an article for Smithsonian Magazine called Where Was the Birthplace of the American Vacation? Check the show notes for the link to the article. During the pandemic, there was a rush for homes outside of New York City and particularly larger homes than before. That was because of the ubiquity of work from home. With the increased demand, home prices went up. For example, there was a 56% increase in home prices over just two years in Ulster County. Original year-round residents, including those in essential services like public safety and construction, those in the food service industry, and those in the agricultural industry, often found it harder to stay put. In a fascinating article called Hudson Valley Towns Have a New York City Problem for online magazine The City, writer Sophia Riddle lays out the case for why New York City residents are ruining one of the four major vacation regions I mentioned earlier. But they may as well be saving it, with 45% of the new jobs created in Ulster County last year being in the tourism and hospitality sector. The link to this article is also in the show notes. The popularity of vacation homes and their rising prices have led to a cottage industry, pun intended, of venture-backed companies operating to fill a perceived unmet need. Picasso is a marketplace that provides fractional ownership of high-end vacation homes, also known as timeshares. Den Outdoors is a vertically integrated manufacturer of small-scale vacation homes. Avant Stay is a real estate investment vehicle that is buying, selling, and operating vacation homes as short-term rentals through a branded marketplace. Its founder, Sean Brunner, was my classmate at Columbia Business School. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in October 2021 with architect and certified passive house designer Jenny Payson. Jenny is the founder and principal of Jenny Payson Architecture, a full-service architectural and interior design firm based in Brooklyn, New York. Previously, she worked at Blaze McCoy Architecture and U Plus Bibliowicz Architects. She is a graduate of Cornell University. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us, Jenny. Thanks for having me. When did you know that you were ready to start your own business and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so I worked with Blaze for about three years and uh, was kind of ran a few projects there. Actually, I had a few had a project in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, mm-hmm. and a few projects out on the East End that, you know, that company, uh, Blaze, was always very generous in like teaching us how the project works from start to finish. We were always very active with talking to clients and, and really taking it from start to finish, which was a great experience. And I learned a lot. And so when my husband finished his residency and we, were, we knew we were ready to move back to Brooklyn, which was always our goal, I was like, okay, like, should I just try to do this on my own? Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I kind of understand how this works at this point. 
And we were also talking about starting a family and, you know, that kind of autonomy just felt like the right step at that point. And, you know, we were lucky that we knew uh, six months ahead of time that we were going to move. And so I basically spoke to Blaze and he was very supportive. And I had that six months to put together kind of a business plan and, you know, plan for that kind of uh, going out on my own, which was great. And what were some of the things that you were focused on doing in those six months to get you ready and hit the ground running? I mean, it was some of the kind of the boilerplate stuff mm-hmm. coming up with, you know, getting a website together, getting a portfolio together, talking to clients, talking to consultants, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, how, I don't know, bookkeeping is going to, like all that stuff that you don't like necessarily think about. Also just like getting a, a company like registered, you know, <laughs> like all those things. and all the stuff that you don't learn about when you're in architecture. Oh school yeah. Not, well. even close. Yeah. <laughs> not even close. So that's a lot, you know, that was all kind of a learning experience as well but it it definitely helped to have that buffer period and kind of hit the ground running once i i left and once you did start up there were a number of projects that you started working on both in new york and connecticut and the one that we will be focusing on today is the wilderness drive project in green county in the catskills Uh, could you tell us the Mm -hmm. particulars about the area and then the project site itself yeah, uh, so the town is called East Jewett, and it's actually uh, not far from Hunter Mountain. So there's mm-hmm. some really lovely forested areas there for skiing, for hiking, all that. And we found a really just beautiful five-acre wooded lot, gentle hill, like a nice little stream on it, just really lovely lot. The way that all started was another architect friend of mine who was also interested in Passive House, which we'll touch on later, we, we were kind of just trying to find any way to, to work on a passive house, basically. And it's still kind of up and coming, so there's not a lot of opportunities. So we were like, okay, why don't we just create our own opportunity? And so we, we bought this piece of land. And the first idea was to basically design a modern passive house and sell it kind of like a development, mm-hmm. sell it to anybody who wanted. And it was the time, you know, it was like right in the middle of COVID. People were looking to move mm-hmm. out of the city. It seemed like a really good market for it. But, you know, as you know, I guess just like you, you do developments, so you know about this. It was like a whole, it's just like a lot of difficulty to figure out how to get the right loans, how to get the mm-hmm. right investors, all of that. So ultimately, uh, after finding the site and we had looked at a lot of sites. I we, was going to mention, which, yeah. is, which is also stuff that you don't learn in architecture school. Oh, not, right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> we got the design part down, I have to say. But yeah. this other stuff is uh, definitely a challenge. But you know, we found the site, we kind of fell in love with it. And we're like, you know what, why don't we pivot a little bit mm-hmm. and actually build this house for ourselves between the two couples, we would share it and rent it out when we're not using it, but also, you know, use it and have be able to bring our kids up there during the weekends and whatnot. So at the same time, kind of using ourselves as the guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. So for whatever, we, you know, mistakes we end up making on this first uh, passive house project, uh, at least it'll be for us and not for clients. <laughs> so, that's a really Good, methodical, step-by-step approach. (laughs) So the site itself is five acres. And is it a a flat or sloped? Is it forested? Is there a lot of sun? Like, What did it feel like when you were there? Yeah, it's very, it feels very idyllic. It's like a a very rolling, like gentle hill. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is totally forested. Some beautiful old trees on there, like old pines and clusters. And just the rest of it is forested too. Little stream at the bottom of the hill. So part of that would be kind of figuring out how to carefully clear the site without over clearing. Obviously, you wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do that. But then, you, you know, you want to make sure that the house is oriented in such a way that you have enough solar gain. 
enough shading. There's a lot of like thought that goes into that process, which we're kind of in the very early stages of putting together. The house itself, we're thinking would just be a single story kind of mm-hmm. modern bungalow style, probably with two wings for the two separate families and then like a shared center area for a center kitchen, center living room, playroom, probably a bunk room for the kids. So that's, that's the kind of typology that we're thinking of. And given that you originally thought of this as a, a development activity, do you think that with the two wings that that could also potentially say if one of you is there and one isn't the ability to rent or the other half of the house out? Is, the, is there an ability or would you is that something that you guys are considering as well? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't thought about it in that way. I just think because of the shared kitchen and shared living spaces, Good I think point, it would be yeah. a little strange to, to be in the same space. But it does seem like it's something that you know people may want, at least for like a short-term rental, sure. for the hiking, for the skiing. And you know, we are planning to build in a ton of sleeping space for you know bunk beds and all of that for, for kids and for larger families. So we're hoping that there's a market for that. It does seem mm-hmm. like that based on some of the research we did. So in total, it should be around 3,400 square feet, five bedrooms, three baths, and you're keeping it to one story or two stories? Yeah, yeah, we're going to keep it to one story. And yeah, that's right. What you said is correct. So basically each wing would have its own bathroom, its own full bath, and then there would be one shared full bath mm-hmm. for the bunk room. And you know, there's kind of outdoor water activities or whatever it is. So you come straight into that bath and not have to go all the way to the bedroom wings. And the overall budget, what are you estimating? So the budget came through talking to a lot of contractors, local contractors, trying to understand what they would estimate based on a square foot number Mm -hmm. uh, for Passive House. And we came in at around between a million and 1.3. I think realistically what it's going to be. So it's it's a lot, but we're hoping that between the two of us, we can find some <laughs> some sources of funds. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, the fun of being both the designer and the developer. Yeah. <laughs> so with this as the model for a larger plan that you would have to potentially develop properties for sale or for rent, do you see this as something that you'd be able to scale uh, within this portion of New York, or you see this, the passive house, weekend house opportunity is something that can be actually larger across more parts of this area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very applicable to this climate in general, mm-hmm. but also, you know, it, it really is adaptable. Because the way, you know, the way that the passive house structure works is that you're basically, the house will maintain whatever you put into it. So if you need to heat it, it'll stay warm. If you need to cool it, it'll stay cool. So that like really simple idea of having this very, we haven't talked about the the different uh, elements Mm -hmm. of passive yet, but basically like having this really thermally insulated house is perfect for this kind of environment. And I think as a second home for families in New York City or wherever, really, it's perfect because you don't have to maintain a lot of these complicated systems like HVAC systems that typical houses have. You know, you're not really worried about all that. Uh, You don't have an air compressor on the outside Mm -hmm. sitting in, in the snow. And making a lot of noise along making the way. Making a lot of noise, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scaring away the wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's about time that we talk about Passive House. It's actually a pretty popular design strategy that I've heard other architects talk about. So we had uh, Anne Rowland, uh, who's a partner at FX Collaborative, on earlier this year. And we focused on a school project, but she had talked about the increasing interest amongst her residential clients for Passive House. So I think it's something that a number of firms are looking at and are interested in. 
Yeah, that's so great to hear. I definitely see that interest starting to like become more and more popular. But the way that my passive house instructor, uh, Ed May, of uh, he works for a company called Building Type. I guess he created the company called Building Type. He said, basically what you're doing is you're building a thermos and not a coffee cup. So it's you're super insulating the building. So the walls have a lot more insulation. The windows have triple, three panes of glass instead of two. And the exterior frame of the windows is really specifically detailed to, to minimize thermal bridging. So that word thermal bridging is another thing that comes up as an overall concept of passive house. So basically where you have insulation gaps, such as where the structure of a floor meets the structure of a wall, mm-hmm. you want to eliminate that thermal bridge. So you want to make sure that the insulation is continuous across that barrier, right? So those two things. And then uh, you are creating an airtight envelope. So that is another kind of important value of Passive House where you you really want to make sure that there's not a lot of air going in and out of the wall uh, kind of passively. And then finally, because you have... (laughs) That's the name of Passive House. (laughs) That's the name. Basically, because of that air tightness of the building, you have to provide mechanical ventilation. So that really Mm -hmm. brings in, you know, constant 24-hour fresh air. And so you have this really, really great quality of indoor air. So a few things that I want to dive into in case our users aren't necessarily familiar with some of the, the terms that you used. When you say envelope, what does that mean? Yeah, it's just basically the exterior parts of the house. So the, mm-hmm. the slab that your house is sitting on, mm-hmm. the walls and the roof and any kind of openings that go into that become part of the envelope. So the windows, the mm-hmm. doors, any kind of duct penetrations, plumbing mm-hmm. penetrations, you know, so you really have to be mindful when you're building a passive house that all of those penetrations are attended to really specifically and sealed up mm-hmm. so that you have this continuous airtight membrane that goes around the entire shell of the house. And then you mentioned uh, thermal bridging as being something that you look to avoid. What is thermal bridging and why is that an issue? Yeah, thermal bridging is basically, like I said, where where you have a gap in insulation. And so where Got heat it. and okay. cold can flow in and out of the building more easily. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, oh, I have, you know, six inches of insulation in my wall. Mm-hmm. Like, That's it. It's great. Done. But if you think about it, like where the beams come to meet the exterior wall, there's a beam pocket and, you know, and then you have a gap and the insulation mm-hmm. only dwindles to like two inches. And so you have to think about that as being, you just have to address those really carefully in the detailing. So when you're drawing through the building, you have to think, okay, where are my points of thermal bridging going to happen? It's, and it's usually where two things come together, mm-hmm. right? So when like a window frame and a wall come together, that can create a thermal bridge. So you have to think about how are you going to address the insulation meeting the window frame? Like you want to make sure that there's overlap all the time. And those are interestingly also the places where buildings tend to fail from moisture as well. So it seems like that those are really important points, both from uh, heat management as well as moisture management too. Yeah. 100%. And then the third thing was triple pane. So the concept is three panes of glass. What's between those panes? And why is that better than, say, like double pane or single pane? It's really just the more panes of glass you add. And they have an air, I think it's argon, in between each pane. Mm-hmm. Basically, the more panes you add, the higher your thermal rating of your window is. So the better the window is able to keep the cold out, the heat out. And with triple pane, just through the research of Passive House, they were able mm-hmm. to find that that is kind of the right range for the level of insulation that meets that Passive House standard, basically. Perfect. And then uh, since Passive House is a relatively 
new concept in this kind of modern iteration of it. What are some of the ways that you have developed to communicate the ideas of Passive House to your clients? Right. So like I said, I, I only got my Passive House certification like right before the pandemic. Okay. And, and we've <laughs> so been, you're, you're relatively new as well. Then. We are <laughs> trying. <laughs> we are trying to introduce all of our clients to Passive House. You know, every client whose project has any possibility basically yeah. to become a Passive House. And that includes, you know, Brownstones in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Like those, that's, it's really like, so Passive House has like a separate branch called Enerfit that's perfect mm-hmm. for retrofitting existing buildings. Oh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be new construction. And no, like a it doesn't place. at all. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's much harder. You can't really do it within like an apartment building. It's like mm-hmm. a little bit harder. Although I feel like I have seen an example of that once in like a case study, but basically it's not really something that works too well, but mm-hmm. uh, you can absolutely take an existing building and retrofit it to be passive. And so basically, you know, Eyes do glaze over a little bit when we bring up Passive House, <laughs> but we but we try to start and kind of tell them, here's what the slightly higher upfront cost is going to get you. Mm-hmm. And what it is going to get you is very comfortable houses that are easy to operate. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a completely sealed envelope. So you're not going to have those lovely New York City cockroaches getting into <laughs> your building. You're going to have basically a 24-7 filtered fresh air. So very good indoor air quality that you can constantly control, which is great. And the fresh air is through fans. Is that the idea? Yeah. So basically like a, yeah. So it's like a heat exchange fan. Got it. And so basically uh, it just takes the the stale air out of Mm -hmm. usually the fan, the air that goes in would be in like the kitchen or the hallway. And then the fresh air will be piped into the bedrooms and Mm -hmm. the main living spaces. So the other benefit is having very even temperatures. Mm-hmm. So basically you don't have a cold spot next to the window. So if you're leaning against the window, you're not going to feel that cold, mm. you know, against the glass. Basically the whole house has like a very even, comfortable temperature. And then also, I mean, you really get a 70 to 80% savings on heating and cooling expenses, which is huge. 70 to 80%. Yeah. Cause it just takes a drop. It does not take, you know, like it's really uh, a massive savings in the long run, because all it takes is like one little mini split unit yep. to heat and cool a house. A mini split would be like a through wall unit that does both heating and cooling. If yeah, needed, it's right? like a, yeah, exactly. And basically you could do the same unit, but um, ducted. Mm-hmm. So you evenly spread out the air, but, but the nice thing about passive house, you don't need to have like radiators in front of every window to mitigate the cold that's coming from the windows. The grills that you place can be really anywhere. They uh-huh. work with the design. So they have a lot of flexibility from that perspective too. There's something that's that's so ironic about the way that buildings are traditionally designed and the idea being that heating is put right in front of the windows in order to essentially heat the windows because that's the area of the yeah. largest amount of heat loss. Exactly. I don't think many people that are homeowners realize that's why yeah, those things are where they are. It's nuts. Yeah, I know. But that's what I guess that's the, the trade-off for having light. That's, that's true for a long time until yeah. this has yeah. now become popularized. I think what you described as 70 to 80% savings is something that is incredibly interesting to people that don't necessarily have the opportunity or the option for energy saving systems, say like geothermal or solar because of where they're physically located or yeah. perhaps because of the energy company in their area, they may have something, they may be subject to a very cost fluctuating fuel source, like for example, propane. So my, my parents live in the Princeton area and uh, that particular utility uses propane. So their bills can 
wily swing up and down. So this sounds like something that a lot of people probably in this area would be interested in then. Yeah, it's actually very interesting that you bring that up because the origins of Passive House, when it started out in the 70s, a lot of the research was by North American builders Mm -hmm. who were responding to the oil embargo and wanted to build houses that used very little energy. So that's Ah. kind of like that was like the impetus for it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's completely applicable to today's, you know, environment and kind of global environment. I think there's something very important about this the value of independence of that particular building that you mentioned when we were talking about the Hamptons uh, projects earlier as well, in light of climate change, this very rapid move that we need from oil and gas to alternative fuels is this notion of how can you live with the fewest amount of inputs in your house? I think the large portion is what you described, but I I know many of my friends have also taken some of the smaller, tinier versions of it, which is like having a COVID garden in their backyard. But Mm -hmm. it seems like a a theme that is very resonant with people in 2021. Yeah. And actually what you said is very true. And I wanted to bring up the fact that if you're doing passive house, Mm -hmm. you don't even need to do geothermal. You know, you just, you don't, you're using so little energy that that's mm-hmm. overkill. Solar panels will, will be more than enough. And you'll probably be like selling the um, energy back to the grid at that point if you're using solar panels. That's interesting because I feel like energy saving methods and processes may get bucketed in people's brains in the same place. So they assume that if it's passive house, then you're doing geothermal and you're doing solar and you're doing this and you're doing that. <laughs> but no. really, I think as people, as, this knowledge becomes more available and it's more commonly used that there probably is going to be more nuance to it. And people will understand that if you do this, you don't have to do this too. Yeah. I think what's, what makes it passive is that you're doing this thing once and it just, mm-hmm. it operates as it is. Like that is this thing that you built is just, is it's doing its thing and you don't have mm-hmm. to like give it all this input, which is great. It's like exactly mm-hmm. where we need to be. So let's take a step back. Now that we understand the fundamentals of what passive house is about and and how people are receiving that and how that's that's a very valuable strategy to pursue. What were the origins of the modern passive house movement? Right. So as I mentioned, um, it started out in the 70s. In the 1970s, yeah. The 1970s, yeah. In in the U.S. and Canada, basically uh, with these builders trying to find ways to build very low energy buildings in response to the oil embargo. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of traveled over across the ocean to Germany, where uh, researchers started kind of putting together like the actual tenets of the actual passive house movement. So in the 70s, it wasn't quite defined yet for what Mm -hmm. it was. And then in in the 80s in Germany, basically these two researchers started to put together the actual kind of building science numbers behind this idea of passive house. And that's actually where the majority of passive buildings exist today is in the German speaking world. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And, yeah, so that's kind of how it started out. And very slowly, it's it, this movement, I want to call it a movement, but it's basically like a style of building. It's not prescriptive. It's a type of building that's based on goals. So basically, they give you like the amount of air exchanges, like the maximum amount of air exchanges that you're allowed to have with the interior of the house and the exterior of the house, like the number of the U value that you have to hit for your walls, the U value that you mm-hmm. hit for your ceiling, like it, roofs, you know, there's a specific kind of benchmarks mm-hmm. and then you do it however you want to do it. However, it makes sense in your you know, location with whatever building materials you have. That's the beauty of it too. It's very adaptable. I think what's so fascinating is that in 
the context of what you're describing, there are also earlier, say, uh, historic references to that. So this year, for example, I've been doing a number of road trips across the Northeast. And what I've seen really frequently, particularly in rural areas of Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, is this idea of, for example, uh, using stream water to actually provide cooling for farm goods mm-hmm. or siting a house to take advantage of what the uh, predominant uh, wind flow is in a particular location. And it feels like the what you've described as the, the origins and the tenets of the movement encompasses a number of other things that probably have earlier, more historic references mm-hmm. to them. Because when you didn't necessarily have the optionality of different things, you would have to make do with what was available to you in order to survive and, and be yeah. happy. Yeah, and solar gain was definitely one of those things. And originally when they started researching how to make this really low energy use house, the Mm -hmm. first idea or one of the first kind of ideas was to have these really large windows and allow in like all of the sunlight and have like a big thermal mass that will collect the sunlight during the day and then let it out during the night, Mm -hmm. heating the, the space. But through this research, actually in the 80s, they realized that the better way to do that, the more efficient way is to actually just super insulate. Mm-hmm. You still have solar gain that you, you're trying to get, but they were, they were finding that buildings are actually overheating. It was kind of like a greenhouse and it wasn't a comfortable living environment. So by, by super insulating and being a little more specific and controlled about your solar gain and solar shading, that's kind of how they came to this standard. We talked earlier about the LEED program and the the aspects of that, that's something that's pretty widely understood and widely recognized in our industry. How do you compare LEED to passive house? What are the ways that someone can understand the two in context? Yeah, I mean, I think the goals of both programs are very much aligned. And early in my career, because I was first exposed to LEED, mm-hmm. I was kind of all in. I did, I did my LEED certification. I took the test. It was a great program. And it is a great program. Basically, the way it works with LEED is that you're working towards points and points add up to a certain kind of lead certification. So you get a certain amount of points and you get lead silver, a certain amount of points and you get lead gold. And as I was mentioning to you before, there's mm-hmm. like areas of different ways that you can get these points. So like material sourcing, how efficient your plumbing fixtures are, how efficient your HVAC system is, making sure that you don't have enough, a lot of like off-gassing in your uh, paints, things like that. So like little by little, all those things add up and you get a certain kind of certification for your building which is very good, but it's a little bit different. And I think it's a little more applicable to kind of commercial projects mm-hmm. where frequently there will be somebody who's collecting all of this data and making sure and keep staying on top of it and really cataloging all of that. So frequently you'd work with a consultant on mm-hmm. a bigger project, like uh, the one that we worked with on Carnegie Hall was called the Daris, Okay, New York City. They're great. That process, you know, I, I went through that process with Carnegie and it was interesting. And then um, when I started my own firm and started working for Blaze and seeing kind of of, um, more single-family residential work, I couldn't really put it together in my mind how that would be applicable to mm-hmm. these projects. And so I started thinking about what are some other systems out there for achieving, you know, these very energy-efficient houses. And a friend of mine, actually the, the friend that we bought the property with, mm-hmm. introduced me to Passive House. And she was like, there's this Passive House training class. You know, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Or I was like, sorry, right before the pandemic, she was just kind of like, why don't we take this class and see if we can learn and, you know, maybe kind of do something different. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was great. We took, it was a one week long class and 
just full days. Uh, and then there was an exam at the end that was run and graded by somebody in Germany. Okay. So like, it's very much still centered there, the whole... Okay. Yeah, but it was, I mean, just being in that class it was like, wow, this can apply to basically, you know, like at least 50% of the work that we do in my office. It just seems like a no-brainer and I can't even imagine building any other way now. So yeah, it was, it was really wonderful to see. So the passive house, just to answer your question between the differences, like I said, mm-hmm. it's more of a standard that you're trying to hit and it's less of like a collection of check marks. And so it's a little more flexible. Like if you're working in upstate New York, the builder is more comfortable with stick build wood structures. Mm-hmm. Well, you can achieve passive house with that. If you're working somewhere and they want to do SIPs panels, you know, you can achieve passive house with that. Um, you know, you can do retrofits in New York City. There's just like a lot of flexibility there to get to that standard without having a prescriptive method. Great. And then for our listeners, you mentioned that there were uh, courses that you've taken and a particular instructor for folks that are designers themselves that want to go down the same path that you did. Could you direct them to certain resources then for anyone that's a listener that is interested in having this in their own home, how like a lay person can find out more about this? What would you suggest? Yeah. International Passive House. Just Google it. Mm-hmm. It'll come up. They'll direct you to your local chapters. New York has a Passive House chapter. Mm-hmm. They do conventions. They do kind of trade shows to, to educate designers. They also do training courses for builders. Mm-hmm. which is a, a huge element to this because you really need full buy-in from the GC for these projects. It's not just something that's going to happen. It's going to mm-hmm. be somebody there on site all the time being like, make sure you seal that gap, make sure you seal that gap. But yeah, I would say International Passive House Organization is really the place to start. And they're the ones that are based in Germany. Terrific. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.